Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beloved brothers and sisters, in the midst of one of the greatest sermons ever recorded, the Sermon on the Mount, Christ sets out for us a standard that modern-day society has rejected and opposed. Secular society instructs us to do the opposite of all these things, and they surround us heavily. The idea of being at enmity with those who hold different views, the idea that we must have our own echo chamber filled with those whom agree with us, and the idea that we must embrace our imperfections and failures because that's what makes us, us. And you're perfect just the way you are. Brothers and sisters, Christ here and in many other places makes it plain to us that there is a standard we are to follow that sets us apart from the world. This standard all rests upon one thing, the holiness of God, his complete perfection and otherness. If we measure ourselves to others, we run the risk of assuming we are in better standing than others and can see ourselves as morally superior. Christ, however, points us in another direction, the holiness of God and his love and mercy on the undeserving. Jesus calls us to do the very same thing that he and the Father show throughout all of Scripture. God often loves those who stand in enmity to him and his glory. Israel rebelled against God, yet he loved them. The disciples often failed to obey God, and Peter on one occasion even opposed the will of God in Christ's suffering, prompting Jesus to call him Satan, yet he loved him. We daily fail in our pursuit of holiness and obedience to God, and we should be seen by God as his enemies, were it not for his grace and mercy, yet he loves us. So in light of his holiness, Jesus calls us to love our enemies. And scripture here uses the Greek word agape to show us that it is that love defined as the highest form of love and charity. He calls us to pray for those who persecute us. As Jesus petitioned on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He calls us to do so that we may be sons of our Father who is in heaven. Now, this does not mean that your doing so will make you a son, but it will prove your sonship. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. This shows some of God's means of what theologians call common grace. God has a special love. He shows his elect yet he shows common graces to all of humanity. Likewise, in James chapter two, we are called to not show partiality in our services, 
and in our love to our neighbors. We are instead called to extend the same kind of common grace that God extends to all of humanity. Christ continues, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus points out the hypocrisy in patting yourself on the back for only loving your friends. Anybody can do that. Jesus says that it is loving one's enemy that truly demonstrates a godlike love. And Jesus ends this portion of his sermon. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What a heavy charge this is. We know that we will never attain complete holiness on this side of heaven. Like Paul says in Philippians, we know we have not yet obtained it, nor are we perfect, yet we strive for it. God, however, could not set aside his perfect standard and accept us as any less than perfectly holy. How then, you may ask, does God accept us and even call us sons? Beloved, it is to our benefit and for his glory that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we may become the righteousness of God. In that glorious exchange on the cross, God imputed our sin onto Christ and imputed his righteousness onto us so that legally we can be declared righteous before God. Therefore, it is on two fronts that God the Father and God the Son can command us, as they often do, to be holy as they are holy. On one account, it is because God has freed us from our bondage to sin, and as a result, we can now freely choose to put our sin to death and put on Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, of course. On the other front, God can call us to be holy as he is holy because our legal account already says we are. Paul emphasizes this point in his first letter to the Corinthian church. Cleanse out the old leaven and be a new lump, for you really are unleavened. God, therefore, is calling us to be holy, one, because he has freed us from the bondage to sin and given us freedom to pursue righteousness for his glory, and God calls us to be holy because on Christ's account, we already are. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13 to 19. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamp without blemish or spot. 
Here's the big idea of this text. Because God, who is holy, called us from our former self, our lives are to be a reflection of a holy conduct. Living holy lives. Verse 13 to 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter, Peter begins with the word, therefore. And that word reaches back to verse 1 and 12. In the previous verses, um, Peter encourages these believers by reminding them of some precious truth and realities that belong to them. But not only to them, these truth and realities also belong to us who are in Christ today and we can also be encouraged by these truths and realities and these are you are elect pilgrims in this side of eternity by God's mercy you have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead and all this leading to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading and this is all part of this great salvation that has an already but not yet reality aspect to it I like how um, Tom Schreiner writes in his commentary uh, regarding this, this point um, he says God's commands are always rooted in his grace meaning Because of what God has done for us in Christ, Peter can say, this is how you should live your lives. There's an indicative and there's an imperative. Because of what God has done for you, this is how you should live your lives. Peter continues and says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Preparing your minds for action. The equivalent of this phrase in the Greek reads as follow. Girding up the loins of your mind. Which makes more sense when trying to understand the metaphor that Peter is conveying to his readers. And for us too. Arsus Sproul, in his commentary of uh, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, writes, To the people of the first century, a call to gird up their loins did not typically involve a mental activity or process. The metaphor is based on the cust customary garments of first century people. Both men and women tended to wear long, flowing robes. Even soldiers were commonly such robes. When it came time to go into battle, however, the soldiers were, in, were, were hindered by the robes from moving with agility. 
So they geared up their robes. They hitched them above the knee and then secured them in place with a belt, which left their legs free to run into battle. R.C. continues and writes the following. It is true that what you think in your mind will never get you into the kingdom of God until it reaches your heart. But we have been created by God in such a way that the pathway to the heart is through the mind. And I will argue that we can't do this without being in the word. There's no way that we can follow Paul's command in Romans 12 to not conform to this world and be transformed by the renewal of our minds and discern the will of God if we are isolated from his word. There's no way we can do that if we're not in his word. Peter, con Peter continues, And being sober-minded, say your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In his commentary on 1 Peter, Tom Schreiner makes the remarks that Peter was not merely saying that believers should refrain from drunkenness. There is a way of living that becomes dual to the reality of God that anesthetizes by the attraction of this world. When people are lulled into such drowsiness, they lose sight of Christ's future revelation of himself and concentrate only on fulfilling their earthly desires. So we must be careful and we must look at our lives and look of what the things that we do and ask ourselves, how are we being kept from spending time in the Word? How are we being kept from knowing our Lord? How are we being kept from growing in love and in devotion to our God? And those are questions that if we're honest with ourselves, we can look at ourselves and answer those questions and deal with those problems. The word hope here indicates the act of looking forward with confidence to some future event or object. Hope not to be confused with the kind of common hope that we must usually have that carries no assurance but more than of an uncertain expectation. No, no. The hope that is talked about here in 1 Peter is that of the same kind of the one that we read about in Hebrews 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Our minds should be actively engaging on this hope, the reality that our lives are hidden and anchored in Christ and that the totality of our salvation will be revealed to us on that day when Christ comes in glory. Therefore, as obedient children, 
since God has made us part of his family, we ought to not conform to the passions of our former ignorance, and we must conduct our lives in a holy manner. Why? Because the one who called us is holy. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world under the authority of the prince of this world, enslaved to our sinful desires, and that by nature we were children of wrath, but that God by His grace, love, and mercy made us alive together with Christ. Friends, something wonderful happened when God called us from darkness to light. We are born again by the, regenerate, by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And with that comes as well a change of desires. Now we want to obey God. But while we are still on this side of eternity and sin is no longer our master, we still have to deal with part of our sinful nature, which requires for us to not fall back into our old desires and continually put sin to death in our life. Friends, the Christian life is not a passive life. If we are not killing our sin, like John Owen said, our sin will be killing us. Verses 17 to 19. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were a ransom from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or, go silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Conduct yourselves with fear through your exile. R.C. writes in his commentary, We are justified by faith, but we are reward, rewarded according to our works. The Father who rewards His children according to their obedience does so impartially. So we are to conduct ourselves throughout the time of our stay on earth in fear. Not the servile fear that the prisoner has for his torturer, but the filial fear that a child has for his parents, whom he respects. This is a fear of offending, disappointing, or misrepresenting. A fear born in reverence and a spirit of adoration. Friends, as we come to verse 18 and 19, we can see how Peter continues to give his readers, and us for that matter, more reasons of why we should live in such a way that reflects our new nature in Christ. He says, We were ransomed 
from the futile ways inherit from our forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamp without blemish or spot. We were ransomed, meaning we were bought back. We belong to another. We don't belong to sin anymore. Sin is no longer our master. We belong to a new master, our Lord Christ Jesus. And he did this, not paying with money like silver or gold, which are perishable. He paid this ransom with his precious blood, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The picture here is that of the old in the Old Testament of the day of, of, of the day of atonement, in which the people of Israel will sacrifice a lamb for the forgiveness of their sins. Or also it can take us to that moment in Exodus when the Hebrews were in captivity in Egypt and by putting the blood of the lamb at the doorpost of their homes, the angel of death passed over them. And they were saved and judgment didn't touch their homes. What a precious Savior we have. What a magnificent calling we have to live holy lives, to live set apart for our King, for our Lord, for our God. Therefore, because God, who is holy, called us from our former self, our lives up to be a reflection of a holy conduct.